Two out of the 10 biggest sellers in the United States pharmacopoeia last year were antipsychotic medications. What do we need to know about these meds? Should non-psychiatrists be prescribing them routinely? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Stahl. Dr. Stahl is adjunct professor of psychiatry at the University of California in San Diego. He's an internationally recognized clinician, researcher, and teacher in psychopharmacology, and the author of more than 350 articles and chapters. His latest book is the third edition of Stahl's Essential Psychopharmacology. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Stahl. Hi, Dr. Lunt. How are you doing? Not bad. There's a lot about antipsychotics in the news today, Dr. Stahl. And my first question is, should non-psychiatrists even be prescribing these medicines as liberally as they seem to be? This is a topic of great controversy today. I believe that any well-informed prescriber can give these medications, but the secret is not necessarily being primary care physician so much as it is being well-informed. They are expensive drugs, and there are drugs with risks. If they're given out in a cavalier way, and particularly if they're given off-label, then it's probably not such a good thing. However, they can be used prudently, and we certainly can leverage the psychiatry community by having non-psychiatrists prescribe them. Let's back up and talk about some of the basic pharmacology of these drugs. We talk about the conventional antipsychotics like Haldol and Thorazine, and then the atypical antipsychotics like Olanzapine and several others. What makes an atypical antipsychotic atypical? Well, that's a very good question. Some people would say it's their pharmacology. Some would say it's their price because (laughs) they're very expensive. The definition of atypical comes from the idea that you could have antipsychotic actions without having extrapyramidal side effects. That is really what atypical means. And it turns out that when you have a blocker of the D2 receptor for dopamine, the dopamine D2 receptor, you have at least a conventional antipsychotic because that will help psychosis. However, if you add a serotonin 2A antagonist to the atypical, you can get, hey, maybe have your cake and eat it too. What I mean by that is the D2 properties will allow you to have antipsychotic action, just like in a conventional antipsychotic, but for pharmacological reasons, the serotonin 2A antagonist properties take away or at least mitigate the extrapyramidal side effects. So there's your atypical, something that causes an antipsychotic action without extrapyramidal side effects. But doesn't having your cake translate into significant weight gain? Wow, that was a good one, Leslie. Do you like that one? You know, in the old days, I'm an old guy, you know, and I was at Stanford in the 70s, and I had a tardive dyskinesia clinic. Now, people are walking around with no tardive dyskinesia from EPS or extrapyramidal symptoms, but they're walking around 300 pounds. What's happened? Well, the world, of course, has changed, and for a while, we thought that's all that's happened. There's too many McDonald's and bad diets, and certainly patients who take antipsychotics that live in North America have the same problems that we all have with our weight. And if you're a schizophrenic, it turns out that the chances of getting diabetes and gaining weight is even higher just because you're schizophrenic. But that's a smokescreen that kept us from recognizing as fast as we probably should have recognized that these drugs can cause problems with weight that have nothing to do with eating too much McDonald's or having the gene for schizophrenia. They have only to do with the fact that certain drugs cause 
changes in metabolics. Some of that is pure weight gain because you get the munchies and your appetite goes up, but it turns out it's even more complicated than that. It has a lot more to do with things like insulin resistance, which can change with these drugs. So is that what you mean when you talk about the metabolic highway in your book? Actually, the metabolic highway, the first on-ramp is weight gain. And weight gain, of course, leads eventually to obesity. And then the obesity on this highway leads to insulin resistance, which leads to stress on your pancreatic beta cells, which then can lead to prediabetes, which then can lead to diabetes, which then, of course, is a risk for having heart attacks and death. So the metabolic highway starts with obesity and ends with death. What we thought was that you got on this highway only at the obesity on-ramp and that the drugs gave you the munchies, you ate too much, you got too heavy, and then you propelled yourself down the highway. But what is very interesting is that these drugs can have you enter the highway at the level of changing your triglycerides. In other words, you can have dyslipidemia without any weight gain. If you gain weight, you're going to have dyslipidemia. If you lose weight, you'll actually improve that. There's no question about that. But there are people that have changes in lipids very much faster than their weight changes. It's as though these drugs in some people with some drugs can immediately change insulin such that you have insulin resistance shortly after taking them. And if insulin resistance persists, this will lead to diabetes and cardiovascular events. Can we do anything to stop all this? There are a few things. One is monitoring. Even though some of the drugs, clozapine and olanzapine might be examples, cause dyslipidemia and obesity more than the others, they don't always cause it. I have patients in my practice, I can think two of them on clozapine that are as thin as a rail. They got lucky. Maybe pharmacogenomics someday will actually tell us who they are, but trial and error is all that we have today. So it doesn't mean that you have to avoid all patients taking drugs that have high risk of this. It just means you have to monitor. And what is monitoring? It's not just taking your weight. It's getting triglycerides, fasting triglycerides. You know, one of the things that happens is that it takes weeks, maybe even months, to be sure you're getting weight gain. If someone comes in with a four-pound weight gain, I'm not sure I can tell it. Or in somebody can say, it's my clothes, it's my menstrual period, or whatever. But by the time you've gained 40 pounds, boy, I can even tell it with my eyes. Too late. However, if you get fasting triglycerides, you can see that changing before your weight changes. And it can go up, you know, 10, 20 to even 40 points. And it can do that within days to weeks after starting a medicine that is going to do that. Well, if somebody is taking olanzapine and their triglycerides go up, party is over. If somebody takes olanzapine and the triglycerides don't go up, maybe they're one of those lucky ones. So you have to monitor. Now, there's also low-risk drugs and drugs in the middle. The lowest-risk drugs are aripiprazole and ziprazidone with the drugs like risperidone and quetiapine in the middle. It doesn't really matter. The thing is that this all came up with the atypicals, including your conversation, but as a psychopharmacologist, the listeners should be thinking about doing this to any psychotropic drugs. Have you ever seen a patient gain weight on Depakote, the valproic acid? on lithium, on certain antidepressants. The idea is that one should be monitoring weight, body mass index, which is just, if you know how tall the person is, there's charts that'll help you convert it, and at least fasting triglycerides. Now, if someone is already a diabetic, of course, you have to measure glucose, and you have to make sure they're not a diabetic by measuring fasting glucose at least once. But long before somebody has a fasting glucose problem, and long before they've gained 40 pounds and become obese, we want to know whether they're going to get dyslipidemia and eventually become a diabetic, and so forth. 
I almost make a joke out of this. I think that one of the psychiatric vital signs is fasting triglycerides, no matter what drug you're on. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Stahl. We are discussing antipsychotics and how to monitor and manage them. Uh, Dr. Stahl, how soon after starting one of these medications should we get a fasting triglyceride? Realistically, I'd say every month. I think you need a fasting triglyceride before you start, but I see most patients monthly. And I think that when you're adding a drug, subtracting a drug, or changing the dose of a drug, you should be getting these monthly. Now, if somebody's unstable and you know that they have or they haven't changed their triglycerides, of course, you're measuring weight is just a long time along with it. You know, once they're stable, maybe you only have to do it once a year. But I think the idea is when you start a high-risk drug, monitor weight, BMI, and triglycerides monthly. Now, back to anything we can do to prevent the antipsychotic-induced weight gain. So monitoring, clearly, what if they are gaining weight? Do you just have to stop the drug, or can we do something else? Theoretically, you could change lifestyle. You really think you're going to get patients to stop smoking and start exercising and restrict calories enough to lose 40 or 100 pounds? It's not impossible. It's just unlikely. You can't change your grandmother. Maybe some of us like to change a few of our parents, but, you know, we got the genes that we got, so you can't change your risk factors. So what you really can do, I think, is one thing for sure and the second thing possibly. The for sure thing is you can switch to another drug in the class, particularly a low-risk one. The other thing you can do is possibly some experimental ideas of new diabetes drugs added on. Metformin, but even some things like uh, Kremlintide, which is an injectable peptide, These drugs, which have been out on the market for the treatment of diabetes, can also cause a mitigation of the dyslipidemia and weight gain in patients on antipsychotics. Now, I'm saying this is, again, wildly off-label because it's still in investigation. So it's not ready for prime time and can't be endorsed. But this is where the field is moving. Some people try, you know, the usual appetite suppressants, topiramate can do that in some people, Topamax. There's a zonisamide, which is a zonagran, is another anticonvulsant that can make uh, some people lose weight. These are not highly effective. There's the old-fashioned appetite suppressants. They have their own problems, side effects, and efficacy. I think that the actual thing is to switch drugs is probably the most potent, and if you can't do that, I believe you can try to get people to have lifestyle changes, but I've had a couple of people in my practice, I've actually tried some of the diabetes drugs on. And what kind of results? Pretty good, actually. I've got a specific lady, basically it's a bipolar, who tried essentially everything that was out there, and she consistently got better on olanzapine and nothing else and consistently gained 40 pounds. And so we put her on pramlantide, which is an injectable peptide. It is actually something that changes your appetite and your sense of satiety, And um, she either had a choice of being bipolar or obese, couldn't have being not bipolar and not obese. So, so far, it's early days. It's hard to tell. I've tried metformin a few times with, say, moderate results. Usually, it's hard to make olanzapine or clozapine have that kind of weight gain mitigated. But drugs with a little more moderate signal, such as risperidone or quetiapine, might be better to use these techniques on. But that's just my own anecdotes in and, and its early days. And certainly groups such as the Mood Disorders Group in Toronto, uh, Roger McIntyre, they're looking closely at these sorts of treatments. Yes, there's a big push to try to find a solution for this. 
you know, I believe that it's probable that these antipsychotic drugs bind to some yet unknown receptor, probably in skeletal muscle or fat or liver, to change insulin resistance almost immediately. And if we knew what that was, and I don't think that that will be a secret forever, we can then engineer the new antipsychotics to not have that binding property. But until then, it's going to be pretty hit and miss. Well, thank you for educating us on this today, Dr. Stahl. My pleasure. We've been speaking with psychopharmacology expert Dr. Stephen Stahl about what's new in antipsychotics and the importance of monitoring these patients closely. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you'll receive six months of free streaming for your home or office. If you have questions or comments or even suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. 